the explosive new film, Flynn, Deliver the Truth, Whatever the Cost, exposes secrets behind the government's takedown of General Michael Flynn. Flynn knew what the intel world had been up to. He ordered the first audit of the use of contractors. This set off alarm bells. He told the truth. He was the most dangerous person for Donald Trump to hire. They had to get rid of Flynn. Flynn, Deliver the Truth, Whatever the Cost. Available now. Watch it today. Go to SalemNow.com. SalemNow.com. Welcome back. As we head into hour two of our daily three-hour tour, it is a delight to bring back Professor Brad Wilcox. He is a professor and the director of the National Marriage Project at the University of Virginia. He is also the Future of Freedom Fellow at the Institute for Family Studies, which just published a new report he co-authored titled Strong Families, Better Student Performance. The more things change, the more they remain the same. Professor Wilcox, thanks for joining us again. Welcome back to the Airwaves of Phoenix. My old boss, uh, former Secretary of Education William Bennett, used to say um, in an in a, in an institution of education which is so impervious to change, you give me better churches and synagogues and better families, I'll give you better education outcomes. You give me better churches, synagogues, families, and education, I'll give you a better society. It's still true, isn't it, the part about the families? That's what you have found, isn't it? Yeah, that's right, Seth. What we actually see in this new research is that schools have been kind of throttling back when it comes to things like school suspensions and expulsions and holding kids back in, um, in you know, in, in grades. And we think that's actually probably not not indicative of better, you know, better student behavior. It's just they're kind of feeling pressure from social justice activists, you know, not to. Um, discipline kids and not to hold kids back in school. But even though they've been kind of cutting back on those measures, we still see that kids who are um, from non-intact families are between two and three times more likely to have problems with school um, and to be suspended or expelled from school um, or to be held back um, in school. So um, the kind of the advantage of having, you know, those married parents in your corner um, we find in this new research is as strong as it was 25 years ago. In fact, it's a little bit stronger. Yeah, I was going to ask you. You compare it to 19. Yeah. yeah, you compare it to 1996. You compare uh, 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 what the most recent uh, data you can use is 2019. You compare it to 1996. What did you find? You found that in fact it's it, 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 it's become more true, hasn't it? Yeah, it's, it's you know it's interesting. I was I was talking to a. Uh, someone on a faculty conference, uh, you know, two weeks ago in Maine, and she was sort of speculating that because uh, we've become more accepting of family diversity in recent years, that sort of the impact of growing up in, you know, a divorce or single parent or step family, um, collaborating family would be, you know, would be reduced uh, more recently. But we find just the opposite. We find kind of the impact of being raised outside of that, you know, stable married home for kids is even bigger. And what I attribute that to, in part, I think, is the fact that today, you know, dads are that much more involved. And so kids growing up with, a, you know, sibling married parents have the advantage not just of, you know, that engaged mom, but, you know, nowadays typically that engaged father. And, you know, um, that's the kind of extra special advantage today for, you know, the married family, which unfortunately some kids, you know, don't experience uh, in this day. 
Yeah, that's right. I I was saying before you came on uh, in the last hour, uh, Professor Wilcox, I was saying, you know, not every uh, obviously not every student has no student has a choice as to what family they come from. And not every family is going to have two parents. And that aside, obviously, we know a lot of great single parent families where the kids are doing just fine and the parents are very committed. Those single parents are very committed. What we find is it's harder. What we find is over the mean, over the average. What we find is in the aggregate, it's a much harder outcome to achieve. It takes a lot more work, for one. But also there's this other weird thing, and I don't know how you would describe it or how to describe it myself, but in the absence of a two-parent family, there tends to be, I'll use, I'll emphasize that word tends, there tends to be not only less structure, but less importance on, I guess, the communication and teaching of structure, right, that leads to the discipline problems you're talking about, right? I think it's a bunch of different things. So I think, you know, one thing is that, you know, uh, single-parent families are more likely to struggle financially, and families are less likely to have the father, the biological father, contributing economically to the kids, you know, well-being. So all those things matter. Um, when divorces happen or marriages don't take place in the first place, you see, you know, families moving from one house to the next, and that's hard for kids, that instability. Um, but then, too, yeah, when, when you don't have the married uh, mom and dad together, um, you're less likely to get parents on the same page when it comes to sort of discipline and structure and routines and expectations. And so the disciplinary climate for kids, you know, is is not as strong and not as consistent. So, yeah, all those things kind of add up um, to help explain in part, I think, why we're seeing the persistence, in fact, maybe even kind of the strengthening um, effect of family structure for kids' welcome. We're talking to Brad Wilcox, professor and director of the National Marriage Project at the University of Virginia. Uh, his study, go to ifstudies.org, ifstudies.org, to find his um, to find this new study on strong families and better student performance. Uh, Brad, one of the things I read in in your report, and we'll come back to the education piece in a moment, but let's talk about the family piece for a moment. Family structure. If I read you right, surprisingly, has actually improved uh, since the last time it was measured for these criteria in 1996, right? Well, no, actually, that's not so. Um, Am I wrong? Did I read? Did I misread yeah, you wrong? Right, Intact yeah, families right, have not. It's, it's, okay. Yeah, there's been a slight, slight, slight decline in okay. the share of kids being raised in intact. But it's complicated in the sense that in the last three or four years. Uh, we have seen a slight uptick. Okay, that's okay. The, Sorry. So in the yeah, last, okay, yeah. just most recently. Yeah. All right. So, um, and so what's happening is, to kind of put this in bigger, uh, sort of a bigger context, is um, <clears throat> there's been a, you know, sort of a slight uptick in recent years in the share of kids being born outside of marriage, but, but you know, it's kind of leveled off in, in the main there. Um, and kids who are being born and raised in married households are divorced at a lower rate in recent years. Okay, that's how so I was looking the, at it. Know, okay, I see. Those, those things are kind of moving in somewhat different directions. But, you know, the good news here is that if you're born to a married, um, you know, married parents today, your odds of kind of making it are much higher than they would have been for kids born in the 70s and 80s when the divorce revolution was kind of in high gear. 
And do I read you right that beyond discipline, so you do you do criterion like repeating a grade, you have actual academic outcomes too are improved by intact families, yeah? Well, in this one, we're just looking at, you know, parents contacting, um, sort of being contacted either related to, you know, poor performance or to poor behavior or being kids being held back a year or kids being suspended or expelled. Those four outcomes. Mm-hmm. And across all those outcomes, kids in the intact families are doing better. But what's striking is both in this research that we just released and the research more generally is the impact of family structure is strongest when it comes to student behavior. And it's not as strong when it comes to, you know, performance in terms of grades and in terms of um, things like, you know, the SAT or other, um, you know, standardized tests. And for those outcomes, I think, um, you know, parents' own education, um, you know, differences in intelligence between kids, you know, tend to be more salient. So when it comes to kind of you know, behaving in school um, and not getting in, in big trouble, um, this is where kind of having the benefit of two married parents is particularly valuable. We we used to talk of, maybe some precincts we still talk of, education as one of the greatest civil rights. And when you have some so-called or newly created civil rights organizations that dedicate themselves or offer that the disruption of the Western family uh, Western notion of an intact two-parent family is the ideal. Uh, we 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 know people in your line of business, people who look at the data as I do, we know that's absolutely about the worst advice you could give, right? Yeah, you know, one of the striking things here in this research we've just done is that in the actual coefficients, if you look carefully at the tables in our report, um, indicate that family structure is... Um, you know, a bigger coefficient in our models than race. Uh-huh. Now, to, to be fair, if you, there's something called a confidence interval. But basically, I think the fairest thing to say about the research is that our, you know, our results indicate that family structure is, is, you know, at least as important for these outcomes as race. And yet, as you know, Seth, we tend to talk a lot more about race when it comes to American school today than we yep. do about um, kids' families. So I think there's a kind of a uh, a structural fatherlessness, if you will, mm-hmm. um, that is uh, as big a deal as any kind of you know structural racism that gets a lot more attention in these conversations. I have to take a commercial break, uh, Professor. Do you have time for one more segment, or do you have to run? Sure, I can do one more segment. Yeah, I'd love to do it, because I want to pick up on this uh, second part of, your, uh, of the report that I think is so important that has to do that has to do with passing students along, tolerating it, the mixed classroom, the struggles of dealing with students that some come from mixed families, some that come from single-parent families, and so forth. Uh, I'm Seth Liebson. He is Professor Brad Wilcox, and we will be right back. Welcome back to the Seth Liebson Show. Director of the National Marriage Project, professor at the University of Virginia, Brad Wilcox, is our guest. He's the co-author of a new study, Strong Families, Better Student Performance. You can get it at the Institute for Family Studies, ifstudies.org. Professor, there's a very interesting part of this paper where you go a little bit. You mentioned uh, immigration, education, and families. At the same time... Well, let's just say what you say, which is a lot of immigration into America has come with immigrant families who have a 
bigger, great, put greater emphasis, A, on education, and also a greater emphasis on, on maintaining an intact family. At the same time, there's this curious problem with what we call NAEP, or, or what we call the nation's report card, or NAEP, where we see scores really at an aggregate level just being flat, 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 flat. You attribute that to what? Well, I would attribute uh, that to really two different things, Seth. I think one is that um, our kids are spending more and more time on devices and, you know, less time reading books and, you know, taking in kind of um, knowledge and, and, you know, truth in, in that way. And then I think, too, that our, that our schools are not performing as well, you know, um, when it comes to sort of basic instruction. Um, you know, as they would have, you know, decades ago. So um, those are, I think, you know, two of the factors that kind of account for the fact that a lot of these outcomes we've seen kind of stalled or even declining results, you know, on um, some measures of learning in American education. And, and a toleration, I think you mentioned also a toleration or a defining down of misbehavior, too, in the classroom, right, in the certain right. schools. Right. Yes? So we, we do demonstrate in this, in this uh, new report um, declines in the number of kids who are being held back in school and kids who are being suspended and expelled in school. Um, and yet, we, I don't think we've seen any any dramatic in, you know improvement in either obviously student performance um, academically or in student behavior when it comes to, um, you know, things like fights in school. And, and now I have to speak just anecdotally here in Albemarle County, Virginia, we, we've seen a lot you know, a lot more reports of kids fighting in our local public schools. So sure. That's one, obviously, data point. But anyways, I think what's happening is that under kind of pressure from social justice uh, activists, uh, under pressure from the U.S. Department of uh, Education, um, I think a lot of schools are um, kind of not dealing with behavioral issues because they don't want to rack up bad statistics. So I think that's, that's really more what's happening here rather than, you know, any kind of turn towards um, better student behavior in our schools. You're in Virginia, and Virginia, or at least you're a professor at the University of Virginia, and in, in, in Virginia has always been a state that a lot of education reformers looked to, or at least it was uh, for many years when I was in Washington, D.C., as a state that got it mostly right. Interestingly, for those that follow politics, they would have seen schools a big part of the elections in Virginia last year. Did Virginia lose something over a period of a decade or two um, in, when it came to education, the state that w- w- where you teach, um, or was it that election about stopping something that was encroaching on the successes of Virginia schools over time? Well, I think we have seen, you know, some declines in the quality of, you know, in both instruction and curriculum in recent years. But I think particularly in the wake of COVID, yeah. you know, a lot of public schools across the state locked down and you know, ended up, ironically, you know, because they had expressed a big commitment to bridging racial and ethnic gaps, um, only increasing the divide between, you know, black and white students in Virginia, because a lot of white students um, were educated either, you know, at home or in private schools, you know, once the lockdown began. So that was one issue. Um, and then we also saw a lot of public schools in the state, um, a kind of critical race theory um, agenda coming forward. And uh, also a lot of other kind of identitarian, um, you know, 
agenda is creeping into into the public schools. And what that has meant practically is that they've come to um, discount the importance of uh, tracking, you know, discount the importance of gifted and talented programs, and they've tended to discount um, specialized programs that, uh, like, for instance, in, in healthcare, um, that, you know, they had inaugurated before um, 2020. So I think, you know, a lot's happened in the last now two and a half years in Virginia schools, it's pretty dispiriting. Of course, these are trends that have happened sure. across much of the country sure. as well. Sure. Uh, thank you. Uh, last question for you, but it's a big one. It's the million-dollar question, Professor Wilcox. You spent your career and your life's work uh, in, 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 in studying the issue of the family and, and, and what it means to society. Every piece of social science I've seen shows more intact families, less crime, better economic outcomes for those individuals, better education outcomes, as you demonstrate here as well, other things. Million-dollar question, how do you get more marriage? How do you get more intact families in our society? Well, that's a great question. I think um, there are kind of three different things to talk about here very quickly. Mm -hmm. Uh, One is you know, trying to figure out ways to sort of strengthen in the economy the connection of less educated men yep. to a full-time work. Um, when men are not working full-time, they're much less likely to get married and stay married. And yep. so we've seen a, a big departure from the labor force of, um, you know, less educated men. Um, and so we've got to figure out how to get them reconnected to the labor force. That's, that's the economic point. Um, I think the policy point is that too many of our programs like Medicaid and um, the Earned Income Tax Credit uh, that serve working class and poor Americans uh, now penalize marriage. And so, you know, the calculus for a lot of working class couples is that basically they can get more money from Uncle Sam, more benefits from Uncle Sam if they don't marry, but just still have it. Mm-hmm. And cohabitation is a lot less stable than marriage, and that ends up being a, you know, a problem for them and for their families and kids. Um, so we have to address those um, those policy problems right now. Uh, and the third point is just a cultural point, is that we've been kind of experimenting since the 70s with what I call a kind of a me-first mentality. Yep. And people don't realize that when you kind of put your spouse first and you put your kids first, um, when you uh, deal with difficulty in your marriage by, um, you know, seeking support, help, um, you know, joining a religious community rather than heading to divorce court, um, you're much more likely to thrive long-term, your kids are much more likely to thrive long-term, and your community is much more likely to thrive long-term. There was a study that was done by Harvard uh, last few years showing the, the number one predictor of um, mobility for poor kids, that's, that's the American dream, you know, rags to riches kind of thing, um, was not related to race, not related to school quality, not related to economic inequality. It was the share of two-parent families. It's still the family. So, yeah. yeah, we've got to get that mentality back uh, in this country. Professor Brad Wilcox, thank you so, so very much. Again, folks, the report, Strong Families, Better Student Performance. The more things change, the more they remain the same. ifstudies.org. Professor Brad Wilcox, National Treasurer, sir, thank you for your time. Much appreciated. Thanks for You bet. I'm Seth Leibson, 602-508-0960. We will be right back. Welcome back to the Seth Leibson Show, parts of which, portions of which are brought to you 
by Balance of Nature. I take it every single day, Pure Potent Plant Power. It's a blend of 16 whole fruits and 15 whole vegetables. Potent stuff. You just take it once a day. By the way, you start this, you're not going to need weeks to figure out if this is working for you. You're going to maybe not even need days. After all, you're putting in your body the equivalent of 10 servings of fruits and vegetables. And it's 100% natural. It's all fruits and vegetables. All of it is all fruits and vegetables for your immunity, for your health, for your energy. Balance of Nature. Best product I've ever taken. You can take it to balanceofnature.com. Just make sure to use discount code BALANCE. You know, there's a lot of talk over the last, uh, well, actually over the last two weeks, uh, ever since the um, the seizure and raid at Mar-a-Lago, of the need to dismantle, if not you know, completely take a wrecking ball to the uh, FBI, and I'm open to the discussion of that. I'm open to the argument about that, but um, I also want to tell you if there's an institution I'd rather destroy first while working on some kind of reform of the FBI, some kind of massive overhaul of it, um, it would be the IRS. It would be the IRS, which just got a pay raise, a budget increase, and 87,000 new agents. 87,000 new agents. I want you to think about that. Over in Issues and Insights, they got... The, we have a we have a we have an editorial that says not only are they getting eighty billion dollars in new funding, with forty five point six of that forty five point six billion dollars of that slated for enforce, enforcement mem, uh, measures and the hiring of eighty seven thousand new IRS agents, um, the government uh, the Democrats are trying to tell you that this will lead to generating. $203 billion more into our Treasury over the next 10 years. Think about this massive expansion to reap effectively $20 billion more a year in revenue per year. Think about that. My math's right, isn't it? $203 billion over 10 years gets you about $20 billion a year more. Do you know how little that is for the money we're putting in? For the inputs, do you realize what a little output, how low that output is for the infusion of cash and agents we are putting in? It's a sum that casts doubt as well on the notion that this is only going to impact the super wealthy. Get this. I didn't know this. I, I mean, I knew who, who was mostly audited generally, but I didn't know this particular fact. According to IRS audit data. The most frequently audited county in the United States is one you've probably never heard of. It's Humphreys County in Mississippi. Humphreys County in Mississippi. This rural county near the Delta is known for catfish farming, and it has an average annual income of $18,000 per resident, making it among probably one of the poorest counties in the nation. Yet, the residents there get audited far more than those in cities such as New York, Chicago, Los Angeles, D.C., where some of the massive wealth exists. Charles Redding, 
who's the commissioner of the IRS, sent a letter to the Senate last week assuring lawmakers that their new funding from this legislation will not be used to target the less financially well off. He writes, quote, these resources are absolutely not about increasing audit scrutiny on small businesses or middle income Americans. Audit rates will not rise relative to recent years for households making under four hundred thousand dollars, close quote. And this, of course, echoes the administration's prior promises made to the American people about this weirdly magic number, four hundred thousand dollars. But This is a little bit of a tone shift for the IRS commissioner who testified before Congress just two years ago when he was asked about disproportionate targeting of poor Americans for audits. He said, quote, this is the most efficient use of available IRS examination resources. He would later justify this by explaining that poor Americans from disadvantaged communities are easier to audit because they themselves do not have the resources to fight back, obviously. Thus, they require less time and money and effort on the part of the IRS. By the way, this is not isolated to Humphreys County. That's just the worst example of it. In other words, if you think 87,000 new agents are required to heavily audit less than 1,000 billionaires in this country, you've got another thing coming. And if you're not just under $400,000 but far under, notice the IRS commissioner said not targeting middle class. He didn't say lower class. Notice there are more middle and lower class than wealthy. That's why they're called the 1%. They're going after you. They're going after all of us. Portions of this show are brought to you by Y-Refi. If you're looking for a remarkably unique investment opportunity with a great return for investors, check out Y-Refi. They're offering a fixed no-load interest rate up to 10.25% return for investors, all in a secure and collateralized portfolio. Y-Refi is in the business of helping people who are doing their best to get out of debt the right way by actually doing the right thing in paying off their debts, doing so with dignity and getting all kinds of benefits along the way, including FICO score recovery. Y-Refi is a due diligence approved firm, as I say, run by really good people. They're investors who do well by doing good for others, and you can be a part of that. InvestYRefi.com to learn more. That's the word invest, the letter Y, R-E-F-Y.com. Or give them a call at 855-316-3087, 855-316-3087. They're a locally based company. You can visit them. They won't give you a sales pitch. They'll just talk to you about what it is they do and let it speak for itself. You're going to see more and more of this. There's an op-ed by a couple in the New York Times today. Uh, The title of the op-ed is Liz Cheney in the Twilight of the Old Republican Elite. Subtitle, A Conservative Cancel Culture as Unforgiving as Its Progressive Rival is Sweeping Over the Wyoming GOP Horse Manure. Nonsense. It's not true. Cancel culture. Cancel culture is what people do without due process. Cancel culture is the kangaroo court. Cancel culture is you not knowing why you're being canceled from social media platforms. Cancel culture is university and colleges depriving people of tenure or making their lives with tenure so miserable that they become investigated and protested and everything to force them off campus or to confess 
by deed and word something they don't believe. It's the absence of due process, which is not what an election is, first and foremost. And as far as that op-ed, which I took a look, uh, a look at, goes, uh, listen, listen, listen to this opening sentence. If Liz Cheney's loss to Harriet Hageman in Wyoming's primary election on Tuesday seems like a bad dream to many of Ms. Cheney's Democratic admirers, that's because it is also nonsense. This notion that Liz Cheney had Democratic admirers of any consequence is absurd, absurd. Dial back before January 6th and look at what Democrats said, not just about Liz Cheney's father, but Liz Cheney. Does anyone remember the appellation of Darth Vader to her dad that was not given to her by him by Republicans? It was not given to him by Republicans. And the only reason Liz Cheney has been receiving nice language here and there from Democrats for about a year and a half and no more is because not just because she turned against Donald Trump, but because she turned against 90 percent of the Republican Party, putting a finger in their eye, poking them routinely by saying that if you support Donald Trump, you are part of an effort to dismantle democracy. You were part of an effort to dismantle the peaceful transfer of power on January 6th. She was the one responsible for tying the Republican Party to January 6th. She was one of about four Republicans in elected office that did this, and it was a disgusting thing to do. She knew of no one. Zero people involved in January 6th. She knew none of their names. You know why she knew none of their names? None of them were operating on behalf of the Republican Party. That's why she knew none of their names because none of them had ever been involved in doing anything on behalf other than perhaps voting. They weren't involved in fundraising. They weren't involved in writing op-eds. They weren't involved in the think tank. They weren't involved in party activities up until January 6th. It was nonsense. And she did the dirty job for the Democrats as a Republican, as their useful idiot, to tie all Republicans to the rioters on January 6th. This notion that she had a lot of Democratic admirers will last, I will tell you this right now, will last about another 10 minutes if... If Liz Cheney in her new pack, what is she calling it, named after Abraham Lincoln, in her new political action committee, if she maintains even a vestige of conservatism or Republican Party catechism, what do you think the Democrats are going to say to her about her views on the pro-life movement? What do you think the Democrats are going to say to her about her views when it comes to tax reform? What do you think? The Democrats are going to say to her when it comes to her views on foreign policy or negotiations with Iran, if she still maintains any of those things, which I have not heard her abandon yet, by the way. She hasn't abandoned those points of view so far as I can tell, like, I don't know, a lot of the people at the Lincoln Project or what's her name at the Washington Post? What is her name? Jennifer something or other. Appreciate that. Was that a name you knew 10 years ago? It's not a name we should know now, but you got it. Thank you, Jennifer Rubin. Nicely done. Yeah, like these people who have abandoned all those principles, 
Yeah. If she abandons any of those, then there's another question, isn't there? If she does abandon those principles or those views or those ideologies, she's not going to be a Republican. And there's nothing for Democrats to admire in this quote unquote Republican. So this is not going to be a lasting thing at all. I mean, this is nonsense that Liz Cheney, A, was canceled by the Republican Party in the sense that cancel culture has now hit Liz Cheney or is running rampant in Wyoming. No, she was subject to a primary. A primary is not a coronation. And if you do your level best to swing and punch out 90 percent of the people you want votes from, don't be surprised that your eyes going to be a little black. That's all I'm trying to say here. And don't be surprised that the moment you stand up against the Iran deal or the moment you stand up for cutting taxes or the moment you stand against something like the uh, uh, Inflation Reduction Act or the moment you stand up for crisis pregnancy centers or against Planned Parenthood, don't be surprised that the Democrats will abandon you. Let me tell you something. Let me tell you something. The language that the Democrats have used against the Cheneys for years is the same language they have used against Barry Goldwater and the same language they use against Ronald Reagan and the same language they used against George W. Bush and the same language they used against Donald Trump. They have no desire for Liz Cheney to be a part of them. They just don't. They used her, and she was happily, happy to let herself be used No tears should be shed about Republicans embracing cancel culture. It's not what we do. It's not who we are. If she was canceled, she did it by going against not just her base, but the vast majority of her party that wanted nothing to do with January 6th, but that she tried to colligate to January 6th. She's the aberration. Not you, not us, not Wyoming. By the way, I was just mentioning uh, the Iran uh, deal and um, really interesting. I don't know if you knew this, but the U.S. is uh, engaging in offers to Iran in uh, in Vienna as we speak, even as an American, Maciel Najad, was just targeted by the IRGC, Iran Revolutionary Guard Corps, for assassination here in New York, in the United States, in New York, just as a plot was discovered about former secretary to assassinate former Secretary of State Mike Pompeo, just from the same group, just as a plot was discovered to assassinate the former National Security Advisor John Bolton by the same group, the Iran Revolutionary Guard Corps, which is part of the Iranian government. We got released a series of um, a series of uh, of of what it is that the United States has agreed to give Iran right now, do you, as far as these nuclear talks are going. Do you want to know what we're offering up to the Iranians right now to get them to sign the deal? Removal of sanctions on 17 banks, immediate release of $7 billion worth of assets, sanctions relief for 150 institutions, the sale of 50 million barrels of oil in 120 days, the annulment of all of Trump's executive orders on the very first day, and the exemption of foreign companies from sanctions in case of U.S. withdrawal. This is what we are offering up 
to the Iranians so that they will please ink a deal with us. For what purpose? Have they modified their behavior? I didn't even mention the attempt on Salman Rushdie's life. Which, by the way, the administration seems awfully quiet about, doesn't it? Doesn't it? Is this a country that deserves more cash and more leverage all at the hands of the United States of America? If you think it does, I'd ask you to think again and check your wits at the door and ask yourself, whose country and countrymen are you interested in protecting right now? Alan Dershowitz coming up. Don't go away. I'm Seth Liebson. We'll be right back. Three-star general, Michael J. Flynn, head of the Pentagon Intelligence Agency, knew all the government's dirty secrets. He was one of the most respected generals in the military. Flynn knew what the intel world had been up to. He understood its funding. He ordered the first audit of the use of contractors. This set off alarm bells. The explosive new documentary, Flynn, deliver the truth, whatever the cost, and covers the facts behind this scandal. Flynn told the truth. He was the most dangerous person for Donald Trump to hire. I find out the worst enemy that I'm going to face in my life is right here in America. They took my assessment and they wanted me to change it. I was like, I'm not changing it. They had to get rid of Flynn. With in-depth interviews, archival footage, and never-before-seen personal record to the man behind the headlines. I just felt like I was drowning. Flynn. Deliver the truth, whatever the cost. Available now. Watch it today. Go to salemnow.com. salemnow.com. <laughs> 